Novel Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novel user community with what's going on inside and around the Novel universe. Welcome to Novel Open Audio. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. And I'm David Mayer. Today on the phone, Aaron and I have Martin Canard, Product Manager for Novell Privileged User Manager. Martin, welcome. Good afternoon. Privileged User Manager. Martin, what is it? Is this a new product for us? This is a new product for Novell. It's a, a product that's been around for some time, and it's certainly a space that's been around for some time. But it's certainly a, a new area for Novell, and it's something which uh, I, I would say is a very complementary product to a lot of the other products in the ISM portfolio. What exactly does it do? What it does is it allows you to be able to give access to commands to, uh, you know, for administrators, backup operators, you know, users in an organization that would normally require a high level of access. You know, so they, they require access uh, typically in a Linux, uh, Unix environment to the root accounts. And it provides a mechanism whereby um, the users under their normal logged on user ID can access those commands running as a privileged user without having to know what the root credentials are. So Martin, how is that any different from sudo? It's very similar to sudo. In operation, we have a binary that can be used in exactly the same way. So in the same way that you do sudo space password, we have something called US run, and you could do US run space password. Where we differ is the fact that we have centralized administration. We have the ability to be able to run commands on remote hosts. So typically, if you used, uh, for example, like a minus H option and you're on host A, you could then do do US run space password minus H host B. So you could actually run the password command on host B. The other thing that we also have is um, a set of integrated shells. So we have a rush shell, which is, is a K shell. It has a number of enhancements that allows you to be able to audit all the activity and also lock down the environment. So even though you can be in running as root, we can restrict what the user can type. Now that's a normally open type of shell. And then what we have is um, what's called a restricted shell, a restricted rush shell. Um, And that is normally closed. And you have to implicitly allow access to any user to determine exactly what commands they can execute and what directories they can go to. Let's step back for a minute and really talk about the problem, because I've been bit with this before. Back when I actually did real work, I was out at a large customer of Novell's doing some e-directory work. And at that time, just to do a DS repair or to take a look at some of the stuff in DS, you had to have root level access. So I'd have to drop out to a prompt and do an SU so that I was the equivalent of root. We ran into a huge issue because I was actually at the New York Department of Transportation. And there was no way they were going to give me root access. In fact, none of the system administrators that I was working with had root access to the box. Anytime we needed to do a DS repair or anything, we'd have to call a Unix security specialist to come from another building, come over and literally type in SU for us, run the command, and then that person would wait until the command had terminated, and then they'd log us out. So this really helps in instances like that where you've got heightened security, right? Yeah, and actually that's a great example because oftentimes the people that do need access you know, to the root account on an ad hoc basis are oftentimes the ones you know, where it is most problematic. And so you know, what we're able to do is to be able to provide access to those users, not only you know, under their logged on credentials, so they don't have to have access to the root credentials, to the root password, but also it can be time limited. So you can actually set it up such that the user only has access 
within a given data time range, you know, which certainly um, increases the level of security. And when you then start integrating that thing with, you know, things like IDM workflow, it gives you a, a great mechanism of provisioning ad hoc access according to security policy to all the uh, Unix and Linux machines. Okay, so if we wanted Dave to have the ability to run a specific command to do a DS dump or whatever it is Dave needs to do, we would actually point to Dave's user account and say, Dave now has the privilege to run this specific utility with root equivalent access? What it does is, in terms of the policy, I mean, the way that it's set up, it's very much like a very big visual if statement. I mean, and constructed in much the same way as most other privilege management policies. So what you have is a set of matching conditions. And so uh, typically you may have a group, a user group set up within the system, which could be consultants, it could be root users, it could be sysadmins, you know, I mean, however, you know, the users need to be logically grouped within an organization. And then all that happens is Dave's ID would be added to that group for the period of time that he requires access. And then when his access is submitted, when he actually submits his command either for US run or through the Rust shell, we take a look at, uh, you know, who the user ID what the host is, what the time is. I mean, we pull all the attributes out of the environment. And if there is a matching condition, then we will allow that policy to execute along with any given restrictions that may be prevalent around them. And you do some sort of logging after you've run through that whole policy to see if Dave's allowed to run that command. You do some sort of logging, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something which incidentally can be, you know, sort of programmatically driven. So, for example, you may have a, an instance where if it's a particular user or a particular group or a particular host, you can enable keystroke login, which then means every item that is typed on the command line is sent simultaneously to however many audit managers are available within the environment. And in addition to just the you know, basic login, we also have something that's called a risk analyzer, which actually looks at uh, a combination of who the user is, what the command is that they were running, or what they typed on the command line, and what host it was, and which directory they're in. And then you can apply a risk rating to that. So typically, you could then say that if this is this user, and they happen to be on this host running this command, then you know, we're going to give it a risk value of, you know, say, risk level six, which will then immediately show up as a color coding when we then start subsequently looking at audit reports. So does this mean copying configuration files around a whole set of hosts and then trying to keep them consistent? The way that we handle, you know, sort of policy decision and um, policy enforcement within the privilege user manager environment, we have two components. So there's a command control agent, and the command control agent is the component that's responsible for capturing the command that the user's typing. It sends it to a command control manager. Now, this is the uh, policy decision point. So this is uh, effectively where the policy is kept. It's a database. Once that's been confirmed, then it's remotely executed on a remote execution shell, which resides back at the command control agent. So basically, you have a request mechanism, and the agent sends it to the manager. The manager makes a decision, and then it's remotely executed back on that host. Now, the way that that works is we have something which is called logical domains, which can be constructed within the system, and that allows scalability, and it also allows failover and load balancing such that if any particular manager goes down, then one can immediately take over. And you can arrange the domains into hierarchies as well. So typically, for example, you might have your production domain off of uh, your disaster recovery domain. So if any all your production managers go down, it'll then fail over to your disaster recovery managers. You know, you can build up a very resilient um, environment with a lot of speed benefits in there. That's something that interests me quite a bit. What happens as my network starts to go down? 
Well, certainly, and, I mean, it depends which part of your network, of course. In terms of the way that organizations typically roll out this type of solution, it would be rolled out over a number of different data centers. Some of those data centers are obviously the sort of classes for disaster recovery, or there may be disaster recovery sections within them. And typically what we would do is uh, we group um, resources such that we, we try to minimize network traffic over the wide area, anything that's likely to run into an issue if there are network outages. And so we try to localize traffic you know, wherever possible. But what happens is because of the way that you can construct the domains and you can actually say you can hierarchically construct domains such that they will then fail over to one another, this means then that you can have multiple paths or multiple routes for this network traffic and authorization traffic to be able to authorize these commands if a given segment goes down. Now, the other thing that we also have built into the system is something called a store and forward agent. And what the store and forward agent does, that's responsible for basically taking the load off of the command control agent and is responsible for taking the load off of the traffic that's destined to go to the audit manager. So that what will happen is if, say, for example, the network goes down, a user's busy typing, there's obviously commands that need to be sort of batched up that need to be sent to the audit manager. Rather than interrupting the user because the command control agent doesn't have access to the audit manager anymore, it gets stored locally in a cache, something called a store and forward cache. And so uh, what will happen is these messages will then build up, and then as soon as the network is restored, then the traffic will then continue. Now, the other thing this also does is this also acts as a buffer. So if you're across a wide area and your link speed goes down or a, a lot of traffic happening between sites, then what it will do is it will act as a buffer to be able to take into account situations where there may be more traffic that you're trying to log audit activity for than there is um, available network bandwidth. And in the case of an emergency, I mean, I still have access to SU and sudo. It's just those are where normally we'd be giving this out to a lot of users. We now only use those passwords when we really need to do something low level on the operating system or the network's down, you can't get to anything, correct? Absolutely. We, we don't tie into the kernel. This is strictly user mode. This uh, you know, operates at a high level. It doesn't have an impact on, on any system. It's very non-invasive. And certainly any other mechanism that uh, would normally be used to access the system, we don't interfere with. Martin, let's take a second to talk about how auditing works within the product, because one of the things that I see as a downfall of something like this is you're capturing so much information, you wind up with these huge audit logs, you've got a problem, and all of a sudden somebody's got to go through three months' worth of audit logs to try to find out where the problem was. That's a great call-out. You highlight something which is a very relevant problem to all security products. I mean, you've got that balance between the amount of data that you want to collect and the amount of data that you need to collect and what is the amount of data that can be easily stored and managed. And so what we do is within the system, through the rules and the policies, we normally recommend that at a minimum, organizations need to track privileged user activities. So anybody that's running as the root account, any commands that are running as a high-privileged account, that's activity if you need to be logging. You don't necessarily need to be logging everything from when they log on to when they log off or anything that's run locally or anything that's run in a non-privileged mode, although that is possible as well. On the one hand, there's some recommendations that we make and certainly some tools available within the policy to be able to restrict what you capture. The second thing that we have is the ability to automatically run scripts when rolling over databases. So within the system itself, you can roll over an audit database based upon size or based upon date. Now, generally, organizations tend to roll over the databases, for example, on a daily basis. So it means that you'll have a, a separate log database for each day. 
Now, for one thing, that actually makes it very easy when you're trying to build reports later because you can selectively pull out the databases that you're interested in. The other thing that allows you to do, because we can automatically run a Perl script, we can do things like check in for space. If our retention period, um, you know, for example, might be uh, you know, sort of 60 days on the machine and then it may get archived off to a different location, the system can then automatically enforce that. It can look for the available space, it can compare it against the retention period, and it can then copy those files over to these new locations. And so it's not as if you're going to run into a situation where all of a sudden you're going to run out of disk space. The other thing we also have built into the system are various tools that allow you to be able to monitor the amount of available resources on a machine. So, you know, for example, if disk space does start going down on a particular volume, then it can generate an alert and it can let you know to that effect at any sort of predefined period before then. Does this mean I have to be a Perl programmer if I want to meet specific regulatory requirements? Or have you already done some work to extract data for particular agencies? A lot of work is done in terms of setting up, uh, you know, sort of use cases and, and, and sort of sample workflow environments. I mean, we do have, you know, for example, sample Perl scripts that can be used when generating reports that uh, auditors may need for compliance. There's a number of reports that can be run automatically, for example, when uh, events are waiting to be audited. We also have things like escalation reports. We have entitlement reports that can be run automatically against a security policy and then sent out to people to authorize them within the compliance auditor. So we have sample reports for that. Certainly, Perl isn't necessarily something that I would say is a prerequisite to use the system. I mean, you can use the system with very little programming knowledge. But what Perl does is it makes it very extensible. So rather than some of the competitive products where you can have some proprietary languages, we try to standardize. And Perl being a very widely accepted language and, and obviously having a very big pool of knowledge out there is something that we find that in the field, we've never really hit an issue in terms of people not being able to implement the product or run it successfully. So Martin, just to clarify what you and Dave were talking about, I want to make sure that I understood it correctly. Perl is really used for when you're setting up, and that would be more of your administrator the, the person who's configuring and setting up the system is going to deal with Perl. Your actual person who goes through these audits is going to be looking more at audit reports and things like that, correct? That's absolutely right. From an auditor and an end user perspective, it's very friendly. What will happen is the auditor receives an email to say this is how many events that they got outstanding. They click on the link, takes them into the compliance auditor, and they basically just, you know, they have a graphical environment. There's no code involved. And they can very easily look and see what a user's done. They can play it back. They're okay with it. They click authorize. It's done. It disappears on the screen. They move on to the next one. So very, very fast, rapid mechanism for, for clearing audited events. What happens if they don't look at those audit reports and those audit reports just queue up for several days? Well, that's a great question because that's actually something which is a, a very big part of compliance auditing and, and something which uh, is oftentimes really not covered with competitive products. What the system does is it allows you to be able to determine particular thresholds so that, uh, for example, you know, if you're in a, like a banking and financial industry, and let's say, for example, when you sat 70 audits coming up every quarter, you need to be able to prove that you're looking at events within five days of them happening in order to be able to, you know, to make sure that you're going to mitigate any losses. Then what you can do is you can have the system automatically send an email to a user's superior for example, after three days, if nobody's looked at it three days. If nobody looks at it four days, you can then send another email, which can then be a level higher. So this is a mechanism that's able to look at all of the events that are outstanding, look at who they're destined for, because we can apply a label to say this is who should be looking at these events and signing them off, and then 
automatically run reports or emails to be able to notify people. And this runs on more than just Linux, doesn't it? Yes, it certainly runs on all the Unixes, so HPUX, AIX, Stellaris, True64, and we have a uh, Windows version of the product, which is going to be available at the end of the calendar year. Excellent. Can we take just a second, Martin, and talk about how this is actually priced and sold? We don't need to get too much into the pricing. I'm more interested. Is it user-based? Is it server-based? How is it packaged? It's actually packaged and sold by host. So it's by the number of platforms, the number of operating system instances where you're installing an agent. So, for example, if you're in a virtualized environment, you might have five physical hosts and each one is running 10 virtualized instances of Linux. That would be 50 licenses. Sure, it's real hosts that are running the actual code. Yeah. Martin, where are we on the release cycle? What is your current version and what's your next version coming out? So our current version is 2.2. We are working at the moment on a 2.2.1 release, which is going to be FCS September 3rd. This release actually contains a number of quite exciting enhancements. There's a number of different maintenance fixes that would generally go into this type of release. But in addition, what we've also done is added um, additional platform support. So we will now support Z-Series Linux, Z-Series Linux, and we will provide support for the Zen hypervisor. Uh, we also have a built-in syslog emitter, which allows us, in conjunction with a, a Sentinel collector pack, to be able to take all the events that go into our audit database and uh, funnel them directly into Sentinel so we can provide real-time alerting and reporting through Sentinel. And obviously, um, organizations with an SIEM system then get the benefit of correlation then with events from many more systems. So we're quite excited about that. And then generally, there's a number of enhancements in terms of reporting, backup, and there's a couple of new roles that have been added to the help desk function. And we have LDAP support for users logging into the system. So uh, we're pretty excited about the release and looking forward to seeing how we can use this to leverage some of the products in our existing ISM portfolio. A lot of services that aim to provide security, there are software running on the host. What risks are there that I can break in and use that as a proxy to become a super user on the host? Okay, well, that's certainly a good question. We recommend, obviously, that you don't leave any part of the environment necessarily exposed so that you're not going to be providing open access, for example, to a machine that's running your manager databases. You need to protect it you know, by its own mechanism. The other thing that we also allow, though, is for the encryption. It is certainly all of the databases that are within the system. Even if somebody does have root access to a machine where you're storing the policies, it doesn't necessarily mean to say that they can gain access to the specific policies and the way that they work. And when you have multiple managers set up in an environment, there is also a checking that happens such that if a manager does become corrupted, then that will be flagged and that manager, that the data won't be alerted. So effectively, there is a mechanism for detecting whether or not there is data within a database that's been changed not through its own mechanisms, you know, through, through some external mechanism. And what about the code that's running on the hosts that are being managed? The code itself has gone through a number of different assessments. And so one of the things that we've done is that we've actually had the SLES security team evaluate the code. And, and there's, this is something that's happening on an ongoing basis. So internally within Novell, we're always looking for the vulnerabilities. We're always looking for ways in which potentially people might try to circumvent the system. And to that end, the system has been around for some time. It's been in production for almost four years, certainly uh, our largest client. And uh, what we've been able to do, certainly given the fact that it's a very large bank, is we've had to have some sort of pretty stringent security checks done on the system. 
and checking for things like people are doing denial of service attacks, you know, for example, trying to take out managers, what would happen at that result. If somebody does try to take down a component, if a command control agent isn't able to contact a command control manager, it won't actually proceed with a request. It won't allow a user to continue. If there's no way that it can audit the data, so, you know, if you're storing forward cache, it's completely full and it can't access the audit manager. Again, it won't allow you to type anything that it can't record, I mean, if it's a later use. So there's a number of checks that are obviously ongoing. It would be wrong for any organization to say that any piece of code is perfect, but we have a policy as a security product of ongoingly reviewing the system and using whatever external resources that we have available to be able to make sure that we properly take care of any vulnerabilities and we make sure that it's as secure as possible for the end users. Martin, that's exactly the answer I was hoping for. It's been great talking to you today. Martin Cannard, Product Manager for Novell Privileged User Manager. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Martin. Remember that Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Incorporated. Most of our content is directed by our listener community. So please send us your feedback by email at openaudio at novell.com or by leaving comments on our website at novell.com slash openaudio. That's it for this time. Have a good one.